Kara. Hey, Chris. Which, which cat's peeking now? I'm not sure. I'm going to go with the orange one, Fidgeward. He's often the one who doesn't know how to like, yep, no, no, it was Ingrid. As I see her walking away, looking a bit miserable. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so dealing with cats puking during podcast recording is now becoming a regular thing. That's a thing. Tells yeah. us that it's time to start recording. Mm. It is. It's like the, the alarm clock. Cat pukes, start up Zoom. Anyway. Well, who uh, are we talking to today? Uh, we are talking to the E.E. E. Hunt Award winner from the HBAs for Best Student Podium Talk. Uh, Carmen Hove, I believe that's how it's pronounced. I could be wrong. Uh, could also be Carmen Hove. We'll find out real soon. <laughs> Where is she from? Yes, UC Santa Barbara. And the talk for which she won an award was called The Flexibility of Fetal Tolerance. Immune function during pregnancy varies between two ecologically distinct populations. Uh, so I'm hoping she's going to unpack all of the things packed into that title. Well, do we have, uh, I have much, many fewer words and, and not because her work is not interesting. You know, we usually chat about stuff before, but because uh, this is work in progress and we got to see her talk and we got to view her PowerPoint, but we'll have to rely on her to fill us in, I guess, huh? Yeah, and it's also something that's very much out of our wheelhouses, as neither of us have been pregnant, and I don't think we were aware of our fetal stage and how we might be affecting our mothers. <laughs> I was a first-hand observer to how <laughs> traumatic that process is. In a triplet pregnancy, I don't know that that's quite what she's going for here, but hello, Carmen. Hello. Hi, Carmen. Hi, how are you? Doing well, how are you? I'm quite well. Good, and if you wouldn't mind, how do you correctly pronounce your last name so we get it right? Hovey. Hovey, so I got it wrong on both. I'm like, it's either Hove or Hove, and I, <laughs> Hove. Hove is fine too. It's, it's Norwegian, so it's a little bit tricky. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Uh, so welcome to the Sausage of Science podcast put on by the Human Biology Association. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. And then also major congratulations on winning the E.E. E. Hunt Award for your presentation at the Cleveland meetings this year. Um, that must be exciting. Thank you. Yeah, it was, it was great. I had a great time. I was kind of surprised, though. I gave the 8 a.m. talk, and so everyone was uh, looking for their coffee. <laughs> I, I feel like everyone's looking for their coffee through most of those meetings, no matter that what day it is. <laughs> 100% true. Yes, and, and actually pretty much all the time I have coffee brewing right now after I finish my yep. delicious lunch, which I'll be drinking <laughs> into the microphone. Yes. Apologies. We are all currently caffeinating. This is amazing. It's the way we deal with things. I still have, as I was telling Chris, this is now my third online meeting of the day. I wow. still haven't showered post-gym, post-haircut at this point. <laughs> so I'm itchy and smelly. It's great. Wow, that is quite <laughs> the combination. Uh, anyway, this is not about me. Carmen, this is about you. And we love starting these podcasts and all of these interviews with your origin story. Uh, so we'd love to hear about how you got interested in anthropology and why you decided to pursue a graduate degree in it at UC Santa Barbara. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a winding tale. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I didn't really ever plan to go to graduate school, and um, I was one of those horribly indecisive undergrads who changed their major five times. 
And what really got me interested in it was I started doing um, a research project with Kara Walshaffler. She's my undergrad advisor. And I was pre-med at the time. And I realized that I really loved research. And I like doing research on humans, not rodents or C. elegans or <laughs> things like that. And yeah, it was through her that I was able to go to my first um, AAPA meeting. And so got plugged into the community and and sort of just kept going and kept kind of pursuing that curiosity. Yeah, I, I basically pursued graduate school because um, it allowed me an avenue to explore curiosity, which I thought was pretty neat. I was kind of blew my mind that you could go to grad school to, to try and answer questions about human biology and that it would hopefully give me the career that I wanted after grad school. So I know Kara Walsh-Scheffler has done quite a bit with gait, especially related to pregnancy and how gait changes during pregnancy. So did you mm-hmm. work on that specifically with her or something else? What's gait? Uh, walking. So oh, walking gait. changes your center of mass and you got this thing basically protruding out of your stomach and all that stuff. Sorry. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I did work on um, a research project with her. I took a gap year between um, graduating and starting grad school. And I worked on a study where she was looking at differences in the energetics and thermoregulation of walking on flat surfaces versus walking on inclines at different Mm. speeds Mm -hmm. and looking at sex differences in how um, men and women basically assess their their preferred speed and how that actually matches up with um, their most efficient speed. And... Um, how that changes based on um, how strenuous the activity is. Mm-hmm. So what did you find, if you don't mind, or if you yeah, remember? <laughs> of course. Yeah, so what we found is that as people were put to steeper inclines, they uh, basically got better and better at choosing their energetically optimal speed hmm. um, because basically the constraints became tighter. Yeah. And that in between the sexes, women were better at choosing their optimal speed. That's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. If you a moment, because this intersects with some new stuff coming out, both anecdotally and I think more research is being done as well, as to why women have started way outperforming men in extreme endurance races. So right. like ultra marathons. And part of it is the pacing. Women seem yep. to be a whole lot better at pacing themselves so they still have energy at the end. Whereas men are much more likely to like go Mm -hmm. out and tax themselves to the point that they can't finish as well as they would like. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) I recently read um, an article, yeah, kind of interviewing the top uh, female ultra marathoners. And that was really interesting because um, kind of from a thermoregulation perspective, uh, women have higher fat levels and so um, have basically less water to lose. Mm -hmm in terms of um, sweating and things like that. So it would make sense that women are, are really good at kind of queuing into when they're pushing too hard and scale back. And that can be the difference in you know, these hugely intense, strenuous mm-hmm. races. And yeah, I'm wondering it's the pushing too hard versus maybe a better internal assessment of like what that total output is going to need. Therefore, right. that level of intensity do I need to be at to complete the known workload? Which, mm-hmm. lots of fun, interesting questions that have nothing to do with your <laughs> talk. <laughs> uh, That's all right. But yeah, so then how did you go from working with kind of locomotor biomechanics and energetics to 
looking at these interesting trade-offs between mom and fetus, particularly as mediated through the immune system. Right. Well, in undergrad, I was also really interested in the mean function, just kind of enamored with its complexity and um, all of the direct applications it has for health, of course, and also how it's so integrated into the other systems and can impact behavior and how behavior can impact immune function. And in starting grad school, I was reading a lot of different papers on immune function during different reproductive states and became even more fascinated with the, the question of pregnancy because it is this pretty distinct situation where um, the mother has to essentially accommodate a um, genetically foreign and growing thing for nine months and how the maternal immune system accommodates that and how variation or dysregulation can impact uh, differences in pregnancy outcomes and and infant health outcomes. Um, So it was just an interesting question that kind of kept rolling and it all started with with just reading papers and having more questions. That's not how it always goes. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the more you read, the more you don't know. Yes, a truly deep rabbit hole, indeed. <laughs> uh, so for our listeners, we already said the title of your talk, uh, but could you tell us what fetal tolerance actually is? Right. Um, so fetal tolerance is a set of immune changes that occurs during pregnancy in order to accommodate implantation and fetal growth. Um, and it's, there's been a lot of different studies that have been done on different aspects of it. So there's localized tolerance that happens at the level of the placenta, which is a little bit hard to study in humans because it's very invasive, um, but a lot of animal studies on that. And then kind of um, systemic fetal tolerance, where you can actually see changes in maternal immune function that are happening systemically. So you can see this in, in um, blood that's circulating. So that's, that's kind of the gist of fetal tolerance. So is this what you're, are, you're a doctoral student? Yes. Is this your dissertation? Is this the direction you're going? Yes, it is the direction. Um, the talk that I gave for the HBAs was on um, the culmination of my master's research. Hmm. Um, but my dissertation is kind of following up with these questions and looking at um, how immune function changes, not just in pregnancy, but in the transition into the postpartum period, because these are states that are oftentimes kind of broken into these discrete categories, like, oh, there's pregnancy, and then there's the postpartum, and there's birth, but really it's evolved as a unit. And so trying to kind of move towards studying these things longitudinally and also studying them together rather than separately. So I'm interested in how differences in um, the expression of fetal tolerance or immune function during pregnancy impacts the transition to breastfeeding specifically. Mm. So that's where I'm taking it next. Um, But yeah, this this project that I just finished was was for my master's. Could you maybe walk us through, because you you set up your talk, kind of the background of your talk about the Mm. immune profile during pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So what is that and how does it differ from pre-pregnancy? So um, kind of dealing with the systemic level, which is what I looked at, so things you can measure in the blood, looking at it it kind of fetal tolerance and the uh, quantitative descriptions of it started from these really interesting observations that 
oftentimes women who have certain autoimmune disorders like arthritis go through remission during pregnancy. So that was kind of the first hint that something is changing um, during gestation. And using kind of broad strokes, generally what the literature has found is that during pregnancy, um, it's not that the maternal immune system is suppressed, it's just that there's this shift in the components that are relied upon. So generally speaking, during pregnancy, women shift towards greater reliance on non-specific defenses. Mm. Um, so immune cells that target particularly extracellular pathogens. And this results in kind of increasing inflammation across pregnancy, peaking right before birth. And then correspondingly, um, during pregnancy, kind of this downregulation of antigen-specific responses, because those are going to be the ones that are most likely to target fetal cells and fetal DNA. Mm and also uh, reduction in cells that mediate the response to parasites or allergic response. So what this means for disease susceptibility is that pregnant women generally have um, greater resistance to extracellular pathogens like bacteria, so things that are outside of the cell, whereas they have greater susceptibility to intracellular pathogens like viruses, um, which is why pregnant women are generally at greater risk for things like influenza. What are the two populations you studied for this project? So I was lucky enough to have access to two really large cross-sectional data sets that had data on eight different immune markers um, in both women who were not pregnant and women who were pregnant. And um, the first data set was from the Chimane Health and Life History Project. And this is basically an ongoing study that has been going on for quite some time. And it follows this group of people who live in the Bolivian Amazon called the Chimane. And um, they're a relatively small population. They are um, forager horticulturalists, and um, they experience very little market integration. So they have relatively limited access to a lot of different resources, particularly medical. Um, and they have very low contraceptive use. And so they have really high fertility birth rate on average is about nine births per woman. Hmm. And they experience really high exposure to a whole bunch of different pathogens because of the environment that they live in. Um, and then the other population that I was looking at um, is NHANES, a very popular data set looking at um, a large sample of people in the US. And so I basically used these two data sets to set up this comparison between pre-industrial population that um, is relatively less market integrated and then a post-industrial place like the U.S. And I expected there to be differences um, because of the well-documented epidemiological shifts that kind of accompany and follow industrialization. So better access to clean drinking water, uh, antibiotic use, dietary shifts, and those kind of all combine to reduce overall microbial exposure. Um, so that was the one big difference between these two populations that I was interested in, um, because there's been plenty of research looking at basically the overall differences in immune function that result from those differences in exposure history. 
um, because the immune system has actually evolved this sort of dependence on microbial exposure because every encounter basically acts to calibrate the immune system. And so people who grow up in environments um, like the Bolivian Amazon, where they're exposed to all of these things, they generally have higher baseline immune activation, but they have pretty good immune calibration. Mm -hmm. um, so we see really, really low rates of autoimmune disease and allergy among the Chimane, but really high infectious disease mortality. And you see kind of the flip in places like the U.S., um, where there's relatively less exposure, um, so lower activation, but more propensity to react to things inappropriately, which results in different autoimmune disorders and really high incidence of allergy. So that was kind of the, the differences that I was interested in and how it pertains to immune function during pregnancy. Yeah, so then maybe unpack the results among the pregnant uh, women in particular uh, between kind of pre-industrial versus post-industrial. Right. So what we found is that kind of as expected, the immune shifts associated with pregnancy were in the same direction in both populations. So it kind of replicated what is generally found um, in the literature is that there's this increased reliance on um, more nonspecific things. In particular, this group of cells called neutrophils. They're kind of the, the do-it-all cells of the innate immune system. And then we also saw a down-regulation of antigen-specific responses, so, so lower killer T cells and things like that. So those replicated what we'd already seen, but there was difference in, in the magnitude of those shifts between mm -hmm. the two populations. So what we found is that among U.S. women, the shift towards inflammation, um, inflammatory processes, was much steeper than among Chimani women. And then conversely, Chimani women retained both absolute and relatively greater investment in things like their parasite response hmm. and um, their antigen-specific immunity. So um, this kind of reflected those ecological differences and really does suggest that our current understanding of what normal pregnancy is, is limited to the places where we've mostly studied them, which is in places like the US and the UK. And yeah, women, pregnant women in different ecologies are going to express fetal tolerance a little bit differently, which is kind of the take home message yeah. of my study. Uh, so then you had mentioned a little bit earlier that you want to incorporate postpartum and breastfeeding. So tell us where this dissertation is going and what you kind of hope the final product might look like. Right. So I was particularly interested in following up on that kind of extreme, comparatively extreme shift towards inflammatory activation that I saw in the U.S. sample in my master's research and kind of thinking, huh, this has been considered the norm. Um, but what if it is actually a little bit more of an instance of mismatch, perhaps? And if it is, I would expect to see it um, linked to a little bit poor outcomes um, as women transition into breastfeeding because the spike in inflammation tends to happen during the third trimester. Hmm. Um, and it's just because placental cells are dying at pretty quick rates. And when the placental cell dies, it releases fetal DNA right into mom's blood. Ah. And yeah, so there's this um, pretty big inflammation surge that happens during the third trimester. So I've kind of set up my dissertation to look at how the magnitude 
of the inflammatory response during the third trimester and how that carries on into the early postpartum impacts a series of things that have already been independently related to breastfeeding success and that are related to immune function in general. So looking at whether or not women who have an increased inflammatory response are um, more prone to pain during breastfeeding. Mm. And that's because there's plenty of research looking at how different um, inflammatory pathways can actually activate the brain and basically sending kind of these pain signals. And then also looking at how inflammation might be related to impaired milk production. Hmm. So there's a lot of research that's been done on that relationship in other animals, um, most most often cows, (laughs) because there's a lot of dairy research. Actually, that's where most of the lactation research comes from. But it hasn't really been interrogated that much in humans. Okay. And is your plan to still continue working with the Chamani? So I'm focusing in on a sample in the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. So my, my work is focused up in the Seattle area. So collecting my sample from King County. And I chose this area in part because it's undergone this huge demographic shift. Um, there's a ton of immigration that's been happening. That it, The percentage of... King County residents who are born in another country is about twice the national average. Oh, wow. Why is that? It's just booming. There's just, there's so many different factors that are going into it. And I think it's one of those lag time things where we'll know more in like five or 10 years. Yeah. So kind of interested in, in focusing on this area because then I can hopefully get um, a pretty wide sample of Mm -hmm. women who have lived in the U.S. for a long time, have been here for several generations, um, women who recently immigrated, because I think it would be interesting to kind of capture women in experiencing different degrees of acculturation mm-hmm. um, and to kind of that uh, post-industrial environment generally. So that's where my dissertation uh, research will be focused. Nice. And how far along are you? At? What stage are you at with that work? Well, I have a Wenner grant due in one week, so Um, You and my grad student. (laughs) Yeah, it is the grant season indeed. So yeah, I'm kind of finishing writing up my plan and and formalizing my methods. And so hopefully I'll be able to start collecting data relatively soon, hopefully within the next six months. So that's exciting. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, thank you. And good luck with the Wendergren. Thank you. So we always like to talk about some fun things, too, that are not, not necessarily science things, but often science things. Yes. Uh, what do you do for fun? Your hobbies, work-life balance, watching, listening, reading, those things. Yeah. Oh, this is a fun question. Um, the other ones have been fun, too, but this is <laughs> particularly fun. I found that as I have gotten farther into grad school and things are so theoretical and I spend so much time, you know, thinking Um, I found that I've gravitated towards hobbies that are very, very grounded and like you get a prize if you finish Mm. or you get very tangible, um, tangible outcomes. So I've gotten really interested in martial arts. I I started doing jujitsu and been involved in um, self-defense type martial arts since I started grad school. And yeah, I've gotten also really into baking which I never really saw for myself. Um, but when I realized that you only need four ingredients to make really good bread, it kind of blew my mind. 
So yeah, I've been doing a lot of baking, which has been pretty fun. We have at least four grad students in our program who have also gotten into martial arts uh, with grad school. So funny. Yeah. Baking is common because I totally baked a crazy amount in grad school. It's really cathartic. And it's so nice to be able to have a finished product and to be able to eat the finished product. Do you have a favorite bread type that you've made? Oh, I just made a really nice, like 40% whole wheat. And it's just a pretty simple, simple dough, but it's very versatile. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) If I dare say so. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And I also really enjoy making um, recipes out of this this Norwegian baking book that I bought on a whim. So making different types of uh, pastries. I've been eating a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I do work in Finland and I've had to spend some time in Sweden as well. I'm not Norway yet, but that's going to happen. It totally is. But I've actually enjoyed the Swedish pastries. Yeah. uh, Quite a bit. And I'm I'm wondering how similar they are to Norwegian ones. Uh, I will find out. Right. Hannibula is like a favorite thing. Yeah, I, I'm totally fascinated by the Scandinavian food culture um, in part because one of my roommates got me started watching um, Chef's Table, which mm. I'd never thought to watch on my own. But um, there's this one episode with Magnus Nilsson, who is kind of this prodigy chef man. And he basically did this food ethnography of the entire Scandinavia region and so he kind of outlines all of like the similarities and differences between the Faroe Islands and Sweden and Norway and it's kind of fascinating because they're all so close together but can be quite different yeah Yeah, that's that's pretty cool I I think what has always taken me aback uh, about I guess both Sweden and Finland at this point is the use of cardamom they use Mm -hmm. a quantity of cardamom in like the Mm -hmm and baked goods and I don't think I expected that when I first went but I love it like the fact that I can get cardamom oatmeal instant oatmeal packs like (laughs) that is amazing yeah yeah, yeah. that was my breakfast on a regular basis (laughs) more cardamom all around exactly exactly anyway so if people want to find out more about you or get in touch with you do you use social media websites emails what are you willing to share yeah So I am pretty miserable at Twitter. I posted once (laughs) in like eight years, but I do keep a semi-regular blog. It's the informalscientist.blogspot.com. And I basically use that as a platform to do quick overviews of things that I think are interesting, but I'm very specifically trying to target early stage undergrads or grad students and and kind of um, sharing things that I wish I had known nice. when I was in those stages. That's cool. Um, because I was, I was pretty clueless. So I have things on applying to grad school and... I'm sorry to interrupt, but what's something oh. important that you shared or you've learned that, that you found resonated with other grad students or that you think is important to put out there? Telling a story. I think in all of the writing that I've done or or giving talks or going to talks that I thought were really good, reading papers I thought were really good, kind of the thread that ties them all together is that people really know their story, whether Mm -hmm. it's your personal story or your work story and being able to tell it in kind of the very, you know, the beginning, the middle, the end. Mm -hmm. Um, And so kind of trying to convey that on my blog in terms of that's how people remember you. Mm -hmm. So 
and that's not just for grad school or jobs or grants. The narrative is what becomes important to people outside of science as well, because exactly. if they like you, they'll like your work and mm-hmm. a way to like you is to know who you are and what your story is. So that's a huge, huge, huge piece of advice. Everyone listen to what Carmen says. <laughs> and read her blog. And students are also, well, anyone, um, but especially people who have questions about grad school, my email is on the blog. And so I'm, I'm always happy for people to email me with questions. And yeah, that's cool. Awesome. Is there anything, uh, anything else you'd like to share or say? Well, let's see. Uh, definitely a shout out to, to all the people who helped me with my HBA talk, all the people who participate in the research whose data I used and all the people who collected the data. My master's advisor, Aaron Blackwell, was a huge help um, in forcing me to learn R <laughs> and Bayesian <laughs> methods, which I resented at the time, but now appreciate. Yeah, all the people who helped me, and thank you to you both for having me. It's been really lovely. It's been our pleasure. Yeah, it's been great. Chris, how can people get a hold of you? I'm at Chris underscore L-I on Twitter. And I am at Kara Akabak. Uh, we have been the Sausage of Science. Carmen, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really enjoyed having you. Thank and, you so much. And we should, we, should do, we should do our props. So Sausage of Science, we're affiliated with the Human Biology Association, and we are produced by the wonderful Caroline Owens, who we don't mention enough. Not nearly enough. Not nearly enough. Uh, so if you like us, rate us, share us with friends and family. And thank you all for listening. Do all the things. We'll be back in two weeks. Bye.